Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcasts in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. an emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to five years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show and it's called Southern Sense and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. All right. And you're here. We're back. We're live here on Southern Sense Live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all oh, the heck with it. Go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host, the courageous and colorful Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. How are you today? I'm doing great so far. Just hoping I can get through the show today without getting, you know, too choked up since it's going to be a while, you know, before we are back on the air, airwaves. But um, we got a lot to look forward to, especially today with our guests. So on that note, I'm doing great. 
All right. Um, we'll speed things up a little bit because I'm seeing we're running a little bit behind. Uh, those that listen to the show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to um, Sergeant Charles R. Salloway of the New York State Police. His end of watch was Saturday, June 9th of this year. And this is only a brief article that was written in NY News Now. And it reads, New York State Police Superintendent George P. Beach II has announced that Sergeant and Station Commander Charles R. Salloway has passed due to complications of an illness he sustained from his assignment following the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. Sergeant Salloway was assigned to the World Trade Center in New York City to help aid in search and recovery efforts after 9-11. Sergeant Salloway entered the New York State Police Force on October 1 of 1990 and retired after 27 years of service. At the time of his retirement, he was assigned to New York State Police Troop G in Wilton, New York, in Saratoga County. The only other thing I could find written about Sergeant Salloway was his obituary, which was posted in the Post Star. New York State Police Sergeant Charles R. Salloway, 55, passed away on June 9th from an illness stemming from his assignment at the World Trade Center site following the terrorist attack on September 11, 2001. Charles was sworn into service with the New York State Police on October 1, 1990, and served with them for 27 years. He was promoted to the rank of sergeant in August of 2003. Charles served the majority of his career in Troop G, assigned to S.P. Wilton, where he retired with the rank of sergeant station commander last October. He spent eight years as station commander at S.P. Greenwich, along with time spent at various other locations around New York State, including Troops B, H, and K. Following the events of September 11th, Charles was assigned to New York City to aid in the search and recovery efforts. In addition, Charles served as an academy training officer for the New York State Police Basic School in 2000 to 2001, as well as a field training officer as a trooper for many years. Born in Manhattan, Charles was the son of Nora Colby Salloway and the late Robert L. Salloway. Charles graduated from the Paul D. Schreiber High School in 1980 and then State University of New York at Plattsburgh before he went on to the State Police Academy. Charles always had a humble, compassionate way of bestowing his knowledge and experience upon others. His friendly and approachable demeanor allowed him to be a figure that others could always turn to for help in their time of need, both at work and at home. And he was honored to hold this position in so many instances. Charles was highly regarded and well-known for his confident, calming presence. Everyone knew that if Charles was on your side, everything was going to be okay. He was the definition of a well-rounded person, and he had a love for life that held no boundaries. He had a respect for nature, sports, art, music, history, and everything in between. A few of his favorite pastimes were hunting, hiking, traveling, riding his motorcycle, 
and playing sports and board games with his family. Charles was a beloved son, husband, father, brother, friend, and trooper. He was always proud to be a New York State trooper, but what defined him was the unsurpassable pride and admiration he held for his family. Charles will live in the hearts of his family forever. His wife of 15 years and love of his life, Courtney L. Robinson Salloway, and his beloved children, Cooper, Carson, Taylor, Carly, and Jackson. He's also survived by his brother, Peter A. Salloway, and their two sons, James and Matthew, his sister, Tracery, as well as his in-laws, Nell and Judith Robinson, his brother-in-laws, aunts, uncles, and cousins. The family would like to extend a special thank you to the New York State Police and the Saratoga County Sheriff's Office for their support in this most devastating time. Today's show is dedicated to Sergeant Salloway, but is also dedicated to all the brave men and women who serve as first responders from the birth of this nation through today and into its future, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or first responders. It's also dedicated to all the brave men and women of our military, especially this on the 77th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, which brought us into World War II. I dedicate to them the song by Todd Allen Herndon, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one. Because my mind is out Because my name 
We're back. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News. Oh, good Lord, I can't even talk today. Up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spooky, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. You know what I'm going to say. Go to the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle. Southern-Sense.com. Of course, I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, along with my colorful and courageous co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Curtis, we got ourselves a great lineup uh, today. Uh, first... First victim is already in the batter's booth, so let's, Curtis, welcome aboard Milo Yiannopoulos. Uh, he is the author of a new book just released called Diabolical, How Pope Francis Has Betrayed Clerical Abuse Victims Like Me and Why He Has to Go. Good afternoon, Milo. How are you today? I am so well. Thank you so much for having me. Um, uh, I'm in London, actually, just getting ready to go out for a party, and um, I'm very happy to talk to you. Thank you. Hello, Milo. Oh, welcome across the pond, then. Who is this person uh, with think, this wonderful uh, deep voice? It's like a voice of God. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like the voice you hear in your dreams when somebody sort of pops into you in the middle of the night giving you life advice. It's like, do not marry that man. <laughs> wow. <It's amazing. laughs> This is C.S. Bennett. This is my, my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. He's actually the author of 24 books, and he's working on number 25. Uh, he's also a Navy wow. uh, a veteran. Yes, so uh, yeah, he's prolific in his writing, Incredible. and it's my pleasure to have him as my co-host. Um, so uh, I Incredible. can you while I was reading that voice all day. I am way too late <laughs> to ever get through 24 books. Maybe I'll get through 24 books if I live four lifetimes. <laughs> Um, there you go. Amazing. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I appreciate that. Oh man, no, I was—I had texted you when I was reading the book, your book, the other day, because at certain points you had me in tears. And tell you honestly, I grew up strictly Roman Catholic. I mean, Italian Roman Catholic. You can't get any more than that. Uh, but I saw the change in the church in the '70s and into the '80s to the point where I just couldn't have faith in the church, but you wrote a marvelous book on why people should still have faith. Thank you. Um, well, the, I, the purpose of the book really was to, and this comes towards the end, but explain the importance of the Catholic church, explain why Roman Catholicism still matters, give a brief sketch of, of what a lot of people have no idea of really, which is that the church is the basis for most of what we know as Western civilization. And we talk a lot about, you know, free speech, democracy, capitalism, the rule of law, property rights, all these things that are underpinning our liberal Western democracy. But none of them matter remotely as much as Christianity, specifically Roman Catholicism. And in the book, I try to sketch out where the church has gone wrong. Um, it's become feminized. And what I mean specifically by that is that it's lost an understanding, it's lost a grasp of healthy masculine virtue of the heroic manly virtues that have characterized great heroes from the past and without which civilization falls and fails as i think we can see happening you know um any other is homosexualization of the church so too many gay clergy uh and too much of a blind eye shown to um unpleasant sexual behavior among the clergy which is breeding a sort of um overly permissive atmosphere in seminaries which attracts abusive and, uh, and, and morally repugnant people. What, what I mean by that is if you create the space for sinful things, if you create the space for um, people who, who have, you know, ugly proclivities, whether it's, you know, child abuse or, or, or whatever else, if you create a space where sexual uh, deviancy and sexual miscreants are, are sort of routinely ignored and taken as a fact of life, 
you, you have established space, if you like, for the worst people in society, and you're going to start attracting them. And this is why, and there's nothing intrinsic about Catholicism that attracts child abusers or pedophiles, but the Catholic Church, as it exists today, systematically overlooks the sexual misdeeds of its employees, if you like, of its priests. And that is what attracts morally damaged people to the church um and that is why we have the problem that we have and I, in the book i talk about how pope francis unfortunately of all modern popes and possibly even of all all popes throughout i mean i, I look through the middle ages and i can't find somebody who's quite as bad as this has not only looked the other way like john paul ii did but he's actively assisted people who have been accused or who have who we know have done terrible things even with prepubescent boys um, and because they're politically loyal to him he has enabled them he's protected them he's promoted them uh, and he's defended them and this is unforgivable in a pope uh, and it is it is led to a crisis which could split or destroy the church and my book is about why we have, need a clear out at the top i think the, i think the catholic church needs its uh, it needs its own trump and i would love to see an african pope uh, you know, the Catholic Church in Africa is about the only place the Catholic Church is growing, and they really mean it. They believe it. They are proper Catholics. Um, I would love to see a black pope come in because the liberals wouldn't be able to say anything. Um, and I would love to see, um, you know, a clear out of those old 60s and 70s liberals um, who currently are doing so much damage to, 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 to the church. So that, that, that's basically the book in a nutshell. Well, you outline specifically, you know, individuals who are guilty of these sexual misconducts. I'm sorry, a little tongue-tied today. And right. one of them specifically <laughs> is, um, you call him Uncle Ted, uh, uh, Theodore McCarrick, uh, who had been the right. only living uh, bishop that had been stripped of his... his well, he his, is, his so Theodore McCarrick his, has a, a, a very unique... Um, he has a very, sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you. I think there's a little bit of a delay on the line today. Um, Theodore McCarrick has a very unique distinction, and it's a very disgraceful one. He's the world's only living ex-cardinal. There are other bishops who have been defrocked. There are bishops who've been, well, the technical term is degraded. But uh, Theodore McCarrick is the only cardinal um, to have ever um, been removed from office. And he was removed from office after allegations that he had done, I mean, he was a system, I mean, not allegations, they're established facts at this point, um, that he had systematically abused boys as young as 11 over decades. Um, and Benedict XVI, the last pope, um, who was a great pope in terms of uh, being, he was a great theologian, he was a great thinker, a great writer, but not perhaps, but not perhaps the best leader. And it said that the reason he resigned was that he found himself absolutely uh, um, lost trying to fix the abuse problem, trying to reform the Vatican Bank, which is the most corrupt and hilariously mismanaged financial institution in the world to this day. Um, he couldn't handle it because he was a quiet man of letters and not a leader of, of people. So, you know, the, the, there are all sorts of, of, of things that he didn't quite do right. But one thing he did, one of the things he did right was taking Theodore McCarrick out of circulation. So Benedict XVI um, told him, go and have a quiet life, stop appearing in public, stop giving speeches, get out of seminaries with, where there are young, vulnerable men around, um, and instead uh, just have a quiet life of prayer and reflect on what you may have done wrong. Pope Francis gets in, almost immediately restores Theodore McCarrick's access and responsibilities, rehabilitates his reputation by making him the Vatican's uh, envoy to China, and McCarrick and Francis then proceed to sign a deal which was signed 
two months ago, maybe a month and a half ago now, but two months ago, I think, um, with China, giving the Communist Party of China influence and control over the selection of bishops in China. This is unprecedented since Gregory Seventh, I think, you know, the investiture crisis. The Catholic Church has never granted, never willingly granted states the right to uh, influence the selection of bishops, but they just gave it to China, a country that has Catholics in concentration camps and which arrests children at summer school for quote unquote unauthorized Christian activities. Um, and these old far left social justice warrior bishops, including the Pope and Theodore McCarrick, um, are, are doing deals with communist dictatorships. This is, this is a, the latest in a long history of the Catholic Church sucking up to communists and socialists. Um, this is the latest in a long history. And, and by the way, the other thing I, I try to show in the book, which I think is important, is that very often the most left-wing bishops, the ones who are trying to unpick church teaching on uh, gay marriage, on contraception, on who can receive communion. Very often, these are the same bishops who are the most prolific child abusers or who are the ones who are most aggressively covering up for child abusers. There is definitely a connection. There's definitely a correlation between the people uh, who are most aggressively trying to yank church teaching in a leftward permissive direction and the people who are abusing kids and covering up for the abuse of kids. And Pope Francis has been by far the worst pope, um, certainly in living memory and perhaps ever, um, at turn, not just turning a blind eye, but actively assisting people he knows have abused children succeed and flourish in their careers in the church. And, and very often, the, uh, succeeding and flourishing in your career under Francis means signing deals with communists to give the Communist Party control over the Chinese Catholic Church while you're stationed in Chinese seminaries and who knows what's happening with those vulnerable young men in Chinese seminaries. This is the papacy of Francis, and this is why the book is subtitled as it is, um, and this is, this is why the situation is as serious and as dramatic as it is, because th that's the guy we've got in now. And the book tries to show that we, we were sort of sold on Pope Francis as an Obama-esque hope and change figure, we were sold on him as somebody, you know, the press loves him because he says all the right things about Muslim migrants and all the rest of it. But actually, he's better described as Clintonian. It's not really entirely clear what he believes, although he's surrounded by a very powerful left-wing cabal. What is clear is he will do absolutely anything to hold on to power um, and that he is utterly shameless. And as far as anybody can tell, and I say this very reluctantly as a, as a believing and practicing Catholic, um, quite an amoral man. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because when he was elected pope, uh, my rector, as I was leaving church uh, one Sunday, asked me my opinion, knowing that I was a, a Roman Catholic at one point, and I'm now Anglican, which is highly conservative, or as my sister says, you know, the Catholic Church light. Um, and I, I just, You're high I said, you are going to be, <laughs> you're going to be absolutely disappointed. I said, he is the biggest communist. and He's going to be the biggest disappointment to the Catholic Church. If he doesn't ruin it, he definitely will split it. And I saw this just days after he rose as Bishop of Rome. Uh, and I, I've proven to be right. And everything you write in the book also reaffirms everything that I felt about him and the direction of the Catholic Church. But you point something out towards the end of the book, which is really important. It's what happens at this point with Pope Francis now? If he were to step down, one thing would happen. If he stays and dies in office like most popes do, something else will happen. Uh, explain what you foresee as the future 
uh, for this pope and for the church? Well, the problem with papal appointments is that they're for life. It's also the good thing about them because it makes them immune to, or supposedly makes them immune to political pressure in the same way that monarchs at their best, like the Windsors in England, are supposed to be immune to political pressures. If Francis is pressured to step down, this sets an unfortunate and potentially damaging precedent. So doctrinal conservatives, people who believe in the papacy, believe in the integrity of the Catholic Church, are actually, as much as they loathe Pope Francis in many cases, um, or at least are suspicious of his motives or, or highly critical of him, but at the same time, they don't really want him to resign, because if he does, that sets a, that sets a precedent. That's two popes in a row prior to which there hadn't been a Pope resigning for 500 years, who have both resigned in office. What that means is that Pope's terms are now assumed by default to be limited and that people will no longer die in office. What is the consequence of that? You'll get political factions in the College of Cardinals. You'll get opposition research. The papacy will become just another kind of political appointment rather than the above-it-all monarchical uh, figure that the papacy has, has traditionally... Uh, being, which, which, you know, it, constitutional monarchy as Britain has it, nobody would come up with that system designing a government out of nowhere. But it does seem to work better than everywhere else. In America, you've got a president who's supposed to be, in corporate terms, both, both president and CEO at once. And it never works very well. The presidents that, that are in office are good at one or the other, but very rarely both. In France, you've got an elected president who is like a monarch, certainly in the way that he spends money, um, but, you know, it is ho hopelessly and impossibly grand uh, figure of, of Macron. But with no political power, he's just a sort of just sort of paid figurehead. But he's also political. It's, a, it's an ugly and unsatisfactory system. The British constitutional monarchy works really, really well. And it's not completely dissimilar to the way the Vatican works, too, which is that you do you have an elected pope for life. But in the College of Cardinals and individual bishops and individual dioceses have quite a lot of power. Um, the problem is if, if, if it's assumed that the Pope is going to quit, pressure can be put on every Pope to do exactly that. So when there's a conservative one in, the liberals will make his life hell. His life hell. When there's a liberal one in, the conservatives will make his life hell. And you don't want that situation. Um, the best case would be, you know, the best case would be for him to, his papacy to come to a swift natural close. Uh, as, as you know, not we don't we don't wish for anybody's passing, um, but for the sake of the church, I think it would be better if he became a sort of lame duck pope, in the way that um, uh, Bernstein says that um, uh, Carl Bernstein says that Trump's presidency is where you use a sort of overweening figure whose deputies decide whether or not to follow instructions on a particular day. Um, it might be good if Pope Francis sort of effectively becomes a bit of a lame duck pope, and then we have a strong. Uh, feisty, Trump-like, doctrinal conservative in next who can undo some of the damage, fix the child abuse stuff permanently, uh, perhaps proactively go out and, um, so, you know, have the church start, start spending money to help, to help these people, fire everyone who has been uh, found guilty of, of either abusing children or covering up the abuse of children, which is where the real damage is out of the cover-up, um, and really just cleanse house. And if that means a shrinking of the Catholic laity and clergy, that may be no bad thing, at least temporarily. Christianity and capitalism have grown up in intricate symbiosis with one another because they're quite similar systems. They're both infinitely adaptable and extensible. They're both very, they both map very cleanly onto human nature. Um, 
just like in, in, in capitalist systems where there is a boom and bust economy after a period of explosive growth, sometimes companies need to contract a little bit because they've grown outside their bounds or because they've uh, misbehaved, you know, whether it's the you know, subprime lending or whatever. Maybe the Catholic Church needs to go through a necessary period of cleansing and contraction so that it can begin to grow again um, and, keep, and keep Islam at bay. But it needs to clean house first. And I don't believe that that cleaning of house can happen while Pope Francis is in office. By the same token, it would be dangerous and it would damage the institution of the papacy if he were to resign. So Catholics are left in the impossibly ugly situation of hoping in historical terms and for the, for the, for the faith and for the, for the health of their church that this Pope is not alive too much longer without actively wishing somebody dead. Uh, which is not a situation that Christians want to find themselves in. So it is an impossibly ugly and terrible situation for Catholics to find themselves in because there are no good answers. Milo, I got a question for you. What do you think this um, Pope's position is on open borders as it pertains to um, (laughs) Latin America? (laughs) Well, I think this Pope's position on this stuff is quite clear. I think he entirely signs up to the um, open borders globalist agenda of the international institutions that the Catholic Church works with, you know, the UN and all the rest of it. And the Catholic Church is deeply embedded in all these organizations because it is itself an international left-wing campaigning organization um, to the point of doing things that violate direct, you know, incontrovertible church teaching. We have uh, bishop-endorsed organizations that are given money by the laity via the church. So the church is dishing out money that's collected from the public to organizations that are endorsed by the bishops that write checks to Planned Parenthood. We have organizations that are, that are, that are um, openly and unashamedly communist and socialist operating in America, um, doing things that are in direct contravention to church teaching that are endorsed by the bishops and funded indirectly and in some cases unwittingly, by the laity. Listen to what the Pope says. What does he say? He does this stunt where he washes the Muslim migrants' feet and says, we all worship the same God. We don't. Muslims deny the divinity of Christ. There is absolutely no way around it at all, not even a little bit. We do not worship the same God. But the Pope says we do. And what does this demonstrate? It demonstrates that he is willing to put his faith on ice to say nice things in order to encourage uh, kindness and overgenerosity, suicidally so, to refugees, and especially to refugees from Islamic countries. This, unfortunately, is not just a, a, a Francis problem. Go back two popes, and you've got John Paul II kissing a Quran, a horrible misjudgment. Can you imagine any Muslim leader kissing a Bible? No, it would never happen, because it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous when a pope does it, too. Um, and this, this sort of overgenerous, I mean, we did invent social justice. We are, you know, we, we bear some responsibility for this as Catholics. But um, this present pope, I believe, can be judged according to his actions as well as his words. And sometimes they are consistent. They're consistent in a couple of ways. One of them is he's perfectly willing to park his faith and to set aside uh, church teaching if it means he can have a, a dig at, at, pope, uh, at, at, at uh, President Trump, if it means he can encourage open borders immigration worldwide, if it means he can have a pop at capitalism. Remember, you know, this guy is a classic social justice warrior. He's a typical liberal, ignorant on everything, but holding forth on all the same subjects nonetheless. This is a pope who... Um, openly admits he knows nothing about economics, yet regularly takes time in his homilies, which are supposed to be uh, meditations on faith, 
you know, for, 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 um, for, for the faithful to attack capitalism and to say that capitalism, you know, is, is flawed and faulty and, and all the rest of it. Yet at the same time, is happy to admit to journalists in this sort of incredibly smug, shameless way that all social justice works, that he knows nothing about economics and doesn't know how the global market works. He doesn't know anything about how money works. But he feels perfectly comfortable and confident telling people that capitalism is evil, despite the fact that we know that it is the greatest engine of social mobility and the greatest blah, blah, blah. You know, we all know this. Um, truly remarkable, shameless ignorance. And another example of how he can set aside not just his faith, but also his integrity, his, you know, his judgment, all the rest of it, if it means um, saying something that's in line with um, modern, progressive, globalist, open borders, uh, pro-Islam uh, sorts, of, sorts of policies. That really, I think, is all that, that faithful Catholics need to know about this guy. You know, your book is fantastic. It's called Diabolical, How Pope Francis Has Destroyed uh, clerical, I'm sorry, betrayed clerical abuse victims like me and why he has to go. It, you lay out so many great details on the corruption that's going on within the uh, the Vatican itself, within the colleges inside well, Rome, uh, with this Pope and some of the things that he's done blatantly uh, to show his disregard for the office of the Pope. One thing, uh, refusing to wear the red shoes, which is the sign of suffering and blood. The other thing is taking a name when he became Pope that was not from a, a prior Pope that he may have admired. He took a name out of fiction. He just absolutely Isn't that interesting? Isn't interesting? Our previous that, popes the, have chosen to... Yeah, it's like, it's like previous popes have chosen to uh, show respect for tradition and for authority and for... Um, uh, the continuity of church. They've, they've looked to people who have influenced them and who have inspired them from the past. Benedict, of course, did this, you know. So that, that's why, if you're not a Catholic and you're wondering what all those Pope, you know, Leo, the whatever, whatever, Popes choose a name that um, is drawn from a previous Pope whose work they admire until Francis, who chose a name that no Pope had chosen before. Why does he do that? Because he has that same kind of overweening um, an extraordinary Clintonian arrogance. And that's one of, yeah, thank you for pointing that out, because it it's a little detail that I, I found that I thought was pertinent to the story that is in the book. And there are all kinds of things like that about the papacy of Francis that, that demonstrate that he's not like other popes we've had. And even calling him a leftist is not quite the complete picture, because it's, he is from Argentina. So he grew up being as old as he is and from where he is under Peron. Um, and of course, you know, being a Peronist, is it true to call him a leftist? Well, yes, but that's not the complete picture because it's more accurate to say that he is, in a way that, let's say, the Clintons are corporatist leftists as far as that goes, but really just interested in the naked pursuit of power. Peron, similarly, I mean, Pope Francis, his, his sort of intellectual disciple, yes, he's a leftist. Yes, he believes in the liberation stuff and, you know, he's basically a communist and all the rest of it. But more than any of that, he believes in grabbing power and holding on to it. Well, it is a fantastic book, and I had a lot of pleasure reading it. Well, and what you. I enjoy when I interview the author is listening to the way they speak and then comparing it to the way they write. And there's no difference between the way you speak and the way you write. It is absolutely wonderful. And the information you put out there about yourself, about what's going on, uh, people should be aware of. Because as you said, the change can only come from within the church, and it has to start with the people attending, whether they hold back their donations in the Sunday 
uh, platter as it's being passed around or if they're vocal to their local priests. Uh, you write about one priest that is now currently in hiding because of his opposition to the policies of Pope Francis. Oh, absolutely amazing stories. There's a guy called Father Kalchik, uh, I think, from Chicago. Uh, yes, yeah, from Chicago. In Chicago, um, notoriously left-wing. They have all these gay pride um, masses and all the rest of it in various churches. Um, the full story is in my book, and you really should read it all. But basically, this guy is a hero. Resisted the incursion of gay rights and social justice into his local parish and was rewarded with an instruction to attend compulsory psychiatric treatment without which he would not be able to return to, um, uh, to, to preaching. And this compulsory psychiatric treatment is at a center run by the church, paid for by the bishops, where your confidential sessions with a psychiatrist are shared with the bishop who sent you there as a punishment. So your, your confidential notes from your session with the psychiatrist, where you talk about you know, your innermost worries and feelings and all the rest of it, all those notes are sent back to the bishop. Can you imagine it? And this is a guy who sent you there as a punishment in the first place because you weren't sufficiently left-wing or, or politically correct. So they can hold this material over you for the rest of your career, for the rest of your life. They can deny you permission to do certain things. They can deny you funding. They can deny your parishioners certain things in retribution for you having the wrong politics. And if you don't attend this place, they'll have the police remove you from the rectory and throw you out on the street. And so this, this um, priest for being insufficiently left-wing and for complaining that his parish was being taken over by social justice warriors who were also um, flagrantly and obnoxiously, um, you know, like theatrically homosexual, uh, promiscuous um, violators of the, of the code um, of, of priestly celibacy. Um, and, and, you know, one of these guys, his mentor had been found dead in the rectory strapped to a sex machine after an orgy. You, like, you wouldn't even believe some of the details of this stuff. Um, this guy resisting this uh, was threatened with psychiatric treatment, and when he refused to go, they called the police on him. And he is now, to this day, months later, still living in hiding. Uh, it is a fascinating book, and I think people should be reading it, especially if you are a Roman Catholic. But it also shows that you know here you have a world leader, a leader of the one of the of, I think the largest religious organization throughout the world and throughout history, and yet people are and the media are not telling everyone the truth. So you hear about climate change and all the poor immigrants, and you think, oh, he's such a holy and righteous man that he must be right. He's infallible. So maybe these, these right-wing conservatives, they're the nuts, maybe. Well, papal infallibility is a very specific concept, and it's actually only been invoked once uh, in the last 100 years, I think, and that's in specific reference yeah. to the assumption, to Mary's assumption. Um, Papal infallibility doesn't mean the Pope's never wrong. It means that when he's speaking in a very specific context, in a very technical way, in particular written pronouncements on church policy, that he is not, uh, that, that, that his, his pronouncements are, are, you know, carry the word of, you know, God's authority with them, and, they, and, and he, he's not able to, his interpretations are correct and must stand, right? It doesn't mean that Pope Francis, who's lecturing you on capitalism and taking pot shots at his political enemies in homilies, is right about everything, and God says so. Um, that's something that's often uh, misunderstood, even by Catholics sometimes, about papal infallibility. Papal infallibility is a very specific and highly restricted concept, and has only been invoked once in the last century, I think. So, it, it, you know, this Pope is wrong all the time. He is wrong often. 
Um, and he's not just wrong, but he is vindictive and spiteful. He is um, uh, all kinds of other adjectives that I think I should probably uh, resist saying on the radio. But um, <laughs> you know, this, this is a guy who needs this. Is, yeah, this is a guy who needs to go. Milo. Well, which pope? Which pope in the last forty years, maybe fifty years, do you think um, represented the Catholic, you know, faith as it should be? Should, you know, should have been. I don't think it's a difficult question at all. I think it's very clear that Benedict XVI was the uh, best pope in, in uh, you know, in, in, in living memory. Um, I don't think that popes need to be fame-hungry political grandstanders. Like, you know, lots of people like the fact that John Paul II was, you know, popular and had lots of celebrities go visit him and had pictures with Princess Di and all the rest of it. Um, I don't necessarily think that that sets up a good trajectory for what the papacy is because it makes it attractive to grifters and to political activists um, and to, um, and to the, to the companion types like, you know, like Pope Francis. I think Benedict XVI, one of the greatest, um, most brilliant theologians of his generation, a, a subtle um, an intelligent thinker. Many of his, many of his writings beyond my understanding and, and uh, depth of expertise in theology by, by a, a mile but you look at the speeches that are readily uh, intelligible to, to, you know, to the educated layperson, like the Regensburg um, address and the rest of it. One of the few popes who's prepared to speak honestly about Islam, for instance, but although he does it in a very coded and elegant and, uh, and gentle sort of respectful way. And, and, and a man who leads by spiritual, theological and scholarly example instead of grasping for celebrity photo shoots and making statements uh, critical of, of particular political leaders. John Paul II was, you know, was quote, what we would now call a fame whore, you know, quote unquote. Um, you know, he wanted to, to pictures with famous people. He wants to, you know, bring the church into, in a way, sort of yank the church into celebrity culture. I don't think that that was ultimately um, a hugely helpful thing to do. And I think leading instead by quiet, modest, scholarly example in the way that Pope Benedict XVI did is a much better um, way of, of leading the flock and he was not let's be completely honest a good manager of people and maybe he needed a strong deputy to deal with some of the ugly corruption and some of the abuse scandals perhaps he, perhaps he needed an iron enforcer by his side to deal with some of the things that he wasn't well suited to handle but as a, as a spiritual leader and also as a sort of avuncular as a fatherly figure Pope Francis is difficult to, difficult to beat Excuse me, Pope Benedict, sorry, it was difficult to beat. And one thing I'd say, you know, the press relentlessly painted Benedict as in some way sort of sinister or weird or um, uh, kooky, always, you know, finding the most un un unattractive, unflattering pictures possible, always seeking to make him look uh, sinister because he was doctrinally conservative. They don't know what that means, but anything that says conservative, they know they have to attack it. Um, but if you look at the reaction from young people, to Benedict the Sixteenth, it was much more intense and much more um, genuine and excited. I think. Uh, just look at the apostolic visit to London, for instance, from Benedict, and look at look at the excitement and energy from young Catholics who were so so happy that somebody was actually you know, giving them some spiritual leadership and talking about the Almighty God instead of lecturing about climate change and transgender pronouns. Um, I'm joking, but not by much. Uh, you know, they, they really responded well to that Pope, and I think that um, he's. He definitely needed some administrative assistance, but in terms of being a spiritual leader, I think Benedict XVI is a remarkable and wonderful man. 
Well, the book is an absolute must-read. It is a fantastic book, Milo, and I'm going to recommend everyone well, to you. get it. They can go to Amazon to, to uh, download the, the Diabolical or buy the hard copy, even better yet. And I wish you luck on the book sales. And I know, I understand you're on your way out the door because you've got a party to go to, so have a martini on me, okay? <laughs> well, thank you very much. It's going to be very tiresome. I'm in London for this. Um, it's it's one of the parties of the season. There'll be all kinds of glamorous and fabulous people there. I'll be I will just I will be a, I will be a very unknown author cowering in the corner uh, nursing my drink. So I will thank you for the martini. <laughs> thank you very much. All right. <laughs> and God bless for the hard work you do, sir. God bless and thank you so much. Thank you both. Oh, you're right. welcome. Milo, check out Milo. You. Yiannopoulos and his book, Diabolical. I don't know why my, I'm stumbling over my words today. I think I need a martini at this point. <sighs> but, you know, I actually woke up with a little bit of an upset stomach, so I guess I'm a little bit jittery because my stomach is a little queasy today. So uh, what a great, what a lovely young man. And uh, if you remember, Milo was the one that uh, they rioted over at Berkeley because they didn't want him to uh, do his speech. And ironically, he's a strong conservative, strong in his faith in the Roman Catholic Church, and yet he is gay, openly gay. You know, we are all sinners. We all have our uh, our foibles. But uh, he stands firm for the masculinity of men against the misandry that we see here. He is against the turns that we see of the, the church. And everything he writes in the book really surprised me on how strong he is in his faith. Uh, I would say... It is a must-read for people. Um, Curtis, I want to bring up something a little bit different. Um, Because you know today is the 77th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor. And you really don't see much. Yeah. 77 years ago, the United States of America was attacked by Imperial Japan. And there were a couple of articles in the news here and there, but you didn't see mainstream media talking about it. You don't see it anywhere, actually, anyone really talking about it. But I came across this article up from USA Today, and this is sort of like a middle, mini, uh, in the middle of the show dedication. And I want to mention this because this is important. Because when Pearl Harbor was attacked 77 years ago, nearly 2,400 members of the U.S. military were killed, not counting the civilian population that was also killed. Uh, 20 vessels were either sunk or badly damaged. And this article came out of Honolulu, and it reads, More than 75 years after nearly 2,400 members of the U.S. military were killed in the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor, some who died on December 7, 1941, are finally being laid to rest in cemeteries across the United States. In 2015, Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency exhumed nearly 400 sets of remains from the National Memorial September Cemetery of the Pacific in Hawaii. After determining advances in forensic science and genealogical help from families could make identifications possible. They were all on the USS Oklahoma, which capsized during the attack, been buried as unknowns after the war. Altogether, 429 sailors and Marines on the Oklahoma were killed. Only 35 were identified in the years immediately after the attack. The Oklahoma's casualties were only second to the USS Arizona, which lost 1,100 
and 77 men. As of earlier this month, the agency has identified 186 sailors and Marines from the Oklahoma who were previously unidentified. Slowly, the remains are being sent to be reburied in places like Tear, Iowa, and Ontanogon, Michigan. Here's a look at some of those who have either already been reburied this year or who will be interred today. Daryl Wade. Wade was born in 1917 in Hardin Town community of rural Calhoun County, Mississippi. He enlisted in the Navy in 1936, and in 1940, we enlisted for another two. His burial in his home state was originally planned for a weekend when it would be more convenient for people to attend, but because of scheduling conflicts at the North Mississippi Veterans Memorial Cemetery, his family decided the 77th anniversary of the attack would be an appropriate date, even if some people have to take time off, said his nephew, Dr. Lawrence Wade. He was one of the sailor's relatives who provided DNA to help identify him. My middle name is his name, Durrell. My grandson has that name also, said the 75-year-old retired psychiatrist from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I've gone through my life not really knowing anything about him other than I carried his name and he was killed at Pearl Harbor. Once this DNA process came along and made it possible to identify his remains, it just made him much more of a real person to me. Wade's siblings include four older sisters and one older brother, according to a bio prepared by his nephew. The Wade children were educated by two teachers hired by their parents to live in the home and teach them until a community school was built on donated property. Wade had written home in September 1941 that he had just taken a promotion test from aviation machinist mate second class to chief aviation machinist mate. His nephew has been planning his funeral. A gospel singer will sing the national anthem. Bagpipes will play. Pilots will conduct a flyover. Mississippi Governor Phil Bryant and Captain Brian Hortzman, commanding officer of the Naval Air Station Meridian, will make remarks. William Brezewitz. Renata Stark had been pondering the eulogy she would give at the funeral for her uncle, Navy Seaman First Class William Brezewitz, today. We have always thought of him on December 7th, she said. He's already such a big part of that history. Brezewitz of Appleton, Wisconsin, will be buried in Arlington National Cemetery near Washington, D.C. It's a real blessing to have him returned, and we've chosen Arlington because we feel he's a hero and belongs there, Stark said. About 50 family members from Wisconsin, Florida, Arkansas, and Maryland will attend. We were too young to know him, but we're old enough that we felt his loss, Stark said. We knew some stories. There's this stoicness about things from that time that kept people from talking about things that hurt. Brezewitz's mother died in childbirth when he was six or seven. Stark said, her father and Brezewitz were close brothers. When Brezewitz was 14, they built barns in Wisconsin, she said. They were educated in Lutheran churches. 
William Videra. Hundreds of people filled a Catholic church in Tierra, Iowa, in November for William Kavira's funeral. The solemn ceremony in his hometown included full military honors. The Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier reported, It's something like a dream, his brother John said. John Kavira was 14 when he found out about the bombings at Pearl Harbor and remembers huddling around a radio to find out what was going on. The family initially received a telegram saying William, the oldest of six siblings, was missing in action. A telegram in February 1943 notified the family of his death. Robert Kimball Holmes. The remains of private first class Robert Kimball Holmes was interred in August in his hometown of Salt Lake City. It's strange, isn't it, to be here honoring a 19-year-old kid killed 77 years ago, nephew Bruce Holmes said. Only one person in attendance at the graveside services, another nephew and namesake, Bob Holmes, had any personal memories of the Marine, the Salt Lake Tribune reported. The younger Bob is now more than four times older as a sailor when he died. He remembers his uncle coming home on leave in the summer of 1941 when he was six years old. Bob Holmes recalled talking to a friend of his uncle who served with him on the Oklahoma. He said, one of the things that I remember most about Bob is that he had this attitude, a Marine attitude, but a Holmes boy attitude, defiance, aggression, and don't mess with me. Lowell Valley, for nearly 20 years, Navy fireman second class, Lowell Valley's brother worked to identify USS Oklahoma sailors. Now that Valley has been identified and his remains have been returned home to Antonigan, Michigan, Bob Valley expects his role in helping identify a group of 27 sailors will be over. All 27 have been located. Lowell Valley was buried at the Holy, Holy Family Catholic Cemetery in July, the Iron Mountain Daily News reported. Leon Erectus, more than 76 years after he died, the remains of Navy Sealman First Class Leon Erectus was buried in a brilliant summer day at a small, I'm sorry, for some reason I don't have, I apologize. I turned it the wrong way. At a small cemetery amid the cornfields of northern Iowa. Hundreds gathered in July for Rex's graveside service at Sacred Heart Cemetery outside Osage, Iowa, in a sparsely populated farming region just out of side south of Minnesota, where he grew up. Among them was his niece, Janice Schoenrock, who was a baby when he died. My family talked about him all the time, she said. I felt I knew him because everyone talked about him. Although they didn't have his remains, his family held a memorial service and placed a grave marker at Sacred Heart Cemetery in 1942. When his remains were finally returned, they were buried at a site not far away. Sean Rock said her family appreciates the work it took to identify her uncle, but she believes it's essential to identify as many service members as possible. I think we need to honor these people who gave their lives to our country and bring them back to their home country where they can be close to family who can honor them, she said. No one should be left behind.
Today is the 77th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And we send out this dedication taps in the... So we're waiting for our next guest, Corey Lewandowski, to call in. Um, I will check with his agent in a few minutes if he doesn't call in shortly to see if I can get the phone guy's phone number over here so I can call John. But uh, did you catch in the news that uh, Trump has announced – actually, we knew about this actually last night when I was putting my notes together. Uh, but Trump has gone forward to repl- uh, re- name the replacement for Jeff Sessions. Uh, he's going to go with a former – George H. Walker Bush uh, appointee, Mr. William Barr. Barr. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And uh, he's yeah, also... Yeah, he's, uh, he's an establishment type. By go ahead. Yeah, and uh, I, I'm looking for... What the heck did he do with this guy's phone number? Duh, I'm, I'm losing it today. I actually really am losing it. Anyway. Um, oh, it's Jonathan. Okay. Um but also we have now a replacement for Nikki Haley after she leaves at the end of the year. Uh, believe it or not, mm-hmm. former Fox News. Uh, oh, good Lord. <laughs> Contributor. I cannot think straight today. Good Lord. I think it's I may have to be coming down with. Uh, yeah, and it's Friday. And actually, it's our last show before the holidays. And we'll be back next yeah. year. Um, Heather Nowert. Uh, she actually. She's gotten a lot of great praises. She's been working now, I think, the last two years in the office of the uh, Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. And everything coming out of that office about Heather is excellent praise. She's quick on her feet. She's very knowledgeable about her subjects. Um, So let's hope it will be smooth sailing uh, through the Senate confirmation hearing for Heather Nowert and uh, William Ball. But we do have our next victim up in the bullpen, so let's welcome aboard Corey Lewandowski. How are you doing, sir, today? I'm doing great. How are you today? Oh, man. And the news, it's always Fridays that news always seem to hit. And uh, Rush Limbaugh recently did a rant on that one, but everyone seems to wait until Friday to bomb you with the news. And then you have something to talk about on all the Sunday talk shows. That's the news, news cycle, isn't it? It sure does seem to be that way, right? Does everybody forget that we have other days that we can break news on? <laughs> Listen, you've got a brand new book that just got released. It's called Trump's Enemies, How the Deep State is 
undermining the presidency and you know its release date and what is going on with the Mueller investigation and all the news that is breaking around it. Good Lord is sitting on your shoulder and David's shoulder with this release date. This book is going to go through the ceiling. Well, we've been very lucky. The book's been out a week. We made the New York Times bestseller list this week, which is a real honor for Dave and I. And out of all the books in the country sold in our category, uh, the only two books that beat us this week were Michelle Obama's book and and Bill O'Reilly's book. So we were the third most sold book in the country this week, Trump's Enemies. And obviously, the Mueller probe is part of it. Jim Comey testifying in front of Congress is part of it. And then, you know, the American people want to know what's really going on. And that's what Dave and I talk about in this book, Trump's Enemies. No, it's funny. Um, I, I enjoyed reading the book, and you can hear your voice in it. And like I just told her previous guest, Milo Yiannopoulos, I enjoy talking to the author after I read the book because I like to hear whether or not it's their actual voice in the book or has it been so edited down you don't recognize the person. But you, you can actually hear yours and David's voice as you read the book, which is so much pleasurable. Well, you know, we really took a long time on this book, and, and this is our second book together. We did the first book called Let Trump Be Trump. And number one, we want it to be a good read. We want people to enjoy the read. But number two, because Dave and I have such a unique relationship with the president and travel with him and talk to him and get to see him on a regular basis, we want that to come through so that people can know what it's like as we're interacting with the president, what's really going on. And in our book, we're the only book in the first two years of his administration that he gave a formal interview for. So it's a real honor for us. Yeah, you you write about that in the book, and you you outline uh, what you were going through when this uh, Russian probe was breaking and everything, and what you had to go through, you and Steve Bannon, to get information. And you actually had me cracking up, and I'm trying to find my notes here, um, where you were talking about Steele and his dossier. And when you got to the point where you could imagine the cat peeing in the bed, I'm looking at my six cats going, oh, don't you even think of it, guys. It it is hysterical (laughs) in certain places. Yeah, you know, look, if you didn't know that this really took place, this could be a work of fiction. Unfortunately, it really transpired with, you know, a a political campaign, that of the Hillary Clinton campaign, who took $5 million, paid a law firm to go to a British spy to go make up a salacious story from Russia, and then air all of the dominoes that fell after that, that fake Russian dossier was then given to Nellie Orr, whose husband was a senior person in the Justice Department, who handed the document to Jim Comey, who put it on the president's desk. And here's where we are with the fake Russia witch, witch hunt ever since then. And you know, if you were to say to me, we're going to make up a story about collusion, this is what we're going to do. I'd say nobody would ever believe it, but here we are two years later, and we're still having an investigation on it. Yeah, it's funny because uh, I had the pleasure of briefly meeting you up in Myrtle Beach at the South Carolina Tea Party Coalition Convention recently. Uh, we were actually directly across from you, Curtis and I, broadcasting. And you were supposed to stop at the table, but you got a last-minute phone call and had to rush out. We had uh, I was able to gra- grab Trevor Loudon, who's an old friend of mine, and drag him over. Um, but it, it, it's always fun when you get to meet the people that you interview in in person, like Gordon Chang. I love that guy. Just love him to death. Uh, and it's fun when I get to interview an author such as yourself. But what gives me even a greater kick is that when I see one of my guests, uh, either a past 
or future guests coming up on Fox News. And you had me laughing when you and David were on Tucker Carlson doing the quiz. And you can see the friendship between the two of you, but the competitiveness. Is that what it was like when, it was right when you were writing the book? It is. I mean, look, Dave and I have such a great time together. Uh, you know, we're we're two very average guys, blue-collar guys. Like, I was a police officer. He was a firefighter. And so, you know, we're guys who went on an amazing journey, but we have this great relationship, this great friendship that allows us to do this. But we're competitive, right? Dave's always used to being the boss, and I remind him his title was deputy campaign manager. I was the campaign manager. So, you know, I rip him every <laughs> chance I get. He rips me every chance he gets. And uh, when we did that final exam on Tucker, boy, I was ready. And I, I remind him I beat him four to one, and, and I'm ready to go back anytime for another challenge. Well, people don't realize there is a friendly rivalry between police and firefighters because uh, we had this in NYPD with the uh, New York Fire Department, especially when it came to the boxing matches. And, of course, we'd be ribbing the guys in the house next door to us. So, And we usually won. So I know what you're talking about when you talk about that type of relationship because it is a special relationship if you are a first responder because you never know when each one of you is going to rely on the other one for saving your life. Uh, but Getting a little bit forward, uh, recently, two, t- uh, two whistleblowers are now set to testify before Congress, which is chaired by Mark uh, Meadows. And the story broke about the FBI raiding one of these whistleblowers, which is all tied into Uranium One and Mueller's probe. This, as you said, this could have been made into a made-for-TV movie. This is a blockbuster movie if anyone were to write the script, which they can use your book as a blueprint for. Well, I, I think that's right, and you have to question. And, and look, I think a number of the people who work in our Justice Department, our Federal Bureau of Investigation, are phenomenal people, by and large, the vast, vast, vast majority of those people. But we've seen some bad actors, and I've never heard of a whistleblower's house being raided before. And I think it's important to have congressional oversight into that. And it's also important to find out uh, what we're hearing about Jim Comey's testimony was that it had, he had a Department of Justice attorney with him in the room who instructed Jim Comey in a private session with Congress not to answer questions. Um, you know, for a man who's supposed to have a higher loyalty, which is what his book was, he really is just he has a messiah complex, and he is deciding what is right and what is wrong and what is fair and what is equitable. And uh, I don't understand why there's been no accountability, and I'm very thankful that President Trump has now officially named an attorney general candidate, a nominee, and so we can have a full-time Justice Department up and running again as soon as that person gets through the Senate confirmation process. Well, and this is my prediction because he made a statement when he was confirmed uh, the first time under George H. Bush uh, that he felt Roe v. Wade was a wrong Supreme Court decision. I guarantee you that in that Senate hearing, you're going to have Kamala Harris and Nancy Pelosi and all their other ilk screaming questions at him or lecturing him about his stance on Roe v. Wade. I'm telling you, that's, it, that's going to be a slugfest. Well, that, that may be the case, but the bottom line is he's clearly capable uh, to hold the job. He's already held it once. He passed out of the committee, which Joe Biden happened to be the chairman of at the time, 14 to nothing, and he passed the U.S. Senate. Uh, on a voice vote. So, you know, some of the members who served at that time are still in the U.S. Senate. So uh, as an example, if if that is the case and they vote against him now, what we've seen, unfortunately, is the deterioration of the confirmation process. This has become a hyper-partisan 
a witch hunt. It's been an opportunity for the minority in this case to make political points, to elevate their own potential campaigns for president of the United States, etc. And that's not what it's supposed to be because Lindsey Graham talked about it. He voted for two individuals for the Supreme Court that uh, President Barack Obama had nominated because he believed them to be qualified. But now members of the Senate don't do that. They are simply using confirmation hearings to further their own political agenda, and that's not fair to the American public or the individuals who were before their committees. Now, don't get me started on Lindsey Graham since he's my senator, and I've, I've been known to go nose to nose with him since he's my height. That's very easy to do. Uh, anyway, it's a fantastic and it's a great book, uh, Trump's Enemies, How the Deep State is Undermining the Presidency. And uh, my friend Jerome uh, Kersey, who I met oh, good Lord, about maybe eight years ago again at the South Carolina Tea Party Coalition Convention, I texted him late last night, so I've got him following you. But he, he's, a, he's a fighter. What they have done to Roger Stone and Jerome Kersey in trying to suborn perjury is unbelievable. If you did that as a cop or I did that as a cop, we would have been in handcuffs faster than the criminal. Well, look, there's no question about it. And what we've seen, unfortunately, is two different sets of rules. One, if you're a conservative and you've supported Donald Trump, and one, if you're a liberal. Look, if you're Huma Abedin or Cheryl Mills or Hillary Clinton, you're given immunity for the crimes that you've committed. It's okay. You can physically take out a hammer and break your electronic devices. You can delete emails. You can pass along classified communications with complete impunity. But if you're a conservative and you've supported Donald Trump or his agenda, then guess what? They're going to come after you, and they're going to throw the book at you. And we have seen selective enforcement uh, for a number of years now, and that has to change. Corey, yeah, it's what are to... your? I was. A... <laughs> Go ahead, Curtis. <laughs> what are your thoughts on Chief Justice Roberts and his remarks um, against Trump? I mean, after all, this is the same guy who um, allowed Obamacare to, you know, see the light of day. Well, I have to tell you, I'm very disappointed in in uh, the Chief Justice because. He had opportunities, obviously, uh, when Barack Obama criticized the Supreme Court to weigh in, and he chose not to do that. If you remember during the State of the Union uh, some eight or nine years ago when uh, it's, Justice Alito said not true under his breath, and he was chastised for that because the Supreme Court is not supposed to engage according to the mainstream media on political matters. So I was a little disappointed. Look, I think sometimes people think President Trump is an easy target, and those are – by and large, people who want to be seen in polite company, and I use that term in air quotes. Polite company is in air quotes. Um, But look, if you're just true to yourself and true to your values, and you support what Donald Trump is doing, if you are conservative, you cannot take exception with what this president has done to, to change the Supreme Court, to change the lower courts, for that matter, for the better long term change on the betterment of our country with all of the 84 judges he's had confirmed already more than any other president in the first two years. But it's people like Bill Crystal and Jennifer Rubin and George Will who go out and attack this president not for the substance but for the style and the way he delivers the message. And they claim to be conservatives, but the truth is they're not, and they should not get any additional airtime. I completely agree. If you look at the last two funerals with uh, Senator McCain and now uh, President uh, Bush, they made it all about Trump. 
instead of doing honor to those that serve the country and past, leave the backbiting and fighting after the service. But throughout both of them, all you heard was, well, Trump does this, but Bush did that. And yet they completely ignored all the insults and invictives they hurled at Trump, not Trump, uh, Bush when he was in office. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, look, the difference is um, they don't want to give this president the credit he deserves for getting things done. They just don't. It's not right and it's unfair. Yeah, it, it, something silly is Trump walking into the funeral service wearing his overcoat. Boy, it's cold outside. I'm sorry. I'm not taking my coat off until I'm inside myself. You know, it's something stupid as that. Instead of looking at, as you said, all the good he has done. So what? He's got a brash style. But what about the style of LBJ? He was no gentleman. But no, it, because it's coming from the right, then it's got to be wrong. And, and they have just gotten so uh, rabid. There's no other way to explain them, but rabid. Yeah, well, that, that, that's because they don't like his style. You know, okay, he wore an overcoat in, but you know what? The country did a beautiful service to the 41st president of the United States. This president extended every resource of the U.S. government to him, which was the right thing to do. But even that, all of a sudden, Donald Trump and Melania Trump weren't reciting the Apostles' Creed, and that's what they criticized him for. It's just so unfair. And look, in our book, Trump's Enemies, we do an interview with him, and we ask him, what's the, what is your biggest enemy? And his answer is the fake news, because that's what that is. That is a fake news story that Donald Trump wasn't reciting the Apostles' Creed during the George H.W. Bush funeral, and that's what they're going to criticize him for. It's really, really dishonest, and the president is uh, very good at pushing back and calling those guys out on it. The book is really very detailed, and you go into personalities – uh, and you, when I read that passage about you first meeting James Comey, I started screaming. And I, I, people that have been listening to my show know I've been doing this for years. Um, I've been doing the show now eight and a half years. But any time it comes to James Comey, when he was appointed uh, to the FBI and to everywhere else he was going, I, everyone was saying, oh, but he's registered Republican. You know, he's someone that just will be great for us. And I kept on screaming, you idiots, look at his past. He was the investigator for Whitewater. What happened there? Nada. He was the investigator for the March Rich Pardon. What happened there? Nada. He was the investigator for the Vince Forster suicide, supposed suicide. Nada. And you can go time and time again where he's allowed the Clintons to slide. And when they said he was going to be appointed now to look into the Clintons' email server, I said, what do you think is going to change since Whitewater? Nada. And yet I'm reading the passage well, as you're, well, you're talking about him, and I'm going point proven. No, it, it's amazing. Look, the conflicts of interest that Jim Comey and Bob Mueller have had from the onset, don't forget, right after Jim Comey was fired, Bob Mueller interviewed to be the FBI director again. And when he was not given that job the next day, Rod Rosenstein appointed him as a special prosecutor. Uh, you know, these are two individuals who were exceptionally close. Uh, when when Bob Mueller was the FBI director, Jim Comey was his immediate supervisor at the Department of Justice, serving as the deputy attorney general. And, you know, I don't understand how this investigation is not tainted in some way. And look, I respect Bob Mueller for uh, 
his, his acumen and his service to the country, but I have to call into question whether or not uh, he is an unbiased source in this matter, and I am happy that we are going to have a new attorney general who's going to be able to put a fresh set of eyes on this investigation and make the decision completely agnostic to politics if this investigation should continue or if what I believe it should happen, which is it should come to a screeching halt and uh, you know this should be done with, and every American should have the right to review the Bob Mueller findings because if he is honest about the work that he is doing, he will demonstrate that Hillary Clinton's campaign is the one that attempted to collude with Russia, and there was no collusion from the Trump campaign. Well, Corey, I know that we only had you for a few minutes, and I know you got to run. I want to thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And hopefully we'll run into each other again at another South Carolina Tea Party Coalition convention. And that time I will get you back on the air. Well, I'll be there for sure. And I'd like to say something I couldn't say before. Merry Christmas. <laughs> oh, Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas to you. <laughs> Happy Hanukkah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Corey Lewandowski. Our, our pleasure. Now. God bless. Corey. Lewandowski, got check out his book, Trump's Enemies, How the Deep State is Undermining the Presidency. And now we've got uh, my friend coming back on. Let's welcome aboard uh, Jerome Corsi. Good afternoon, Jerome. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you guys? All right. You know, you had me. You had me bearing, going back in my mind trying to remember how long ago you and I first met. And I'm trying to remember it was at the first or the second South Carolina Tea Party Coalition Convention, uh, it goes way back. That would be it goes quite a while back, quite a while back, I remember. I don't remember myself which one it was, but it goes back a few years. Yeah, quite a few. Matter of fact, I still have the book on the bookshelf. For some reason, I ended up with two dust jackets on the one book, and I've never really? thrown out the second dust jacket. <laughs> That's unusual. That's unusual. Oh, uh, yeah. That's why I'm keeping it, because it's going to be a keepsake. Uh, <laughs> you recently had a uh, to fight to save the President Trump, uh, but now, because of what you are going through and what the Mueller investigation is putting through and what they've tried to do to you, you are releasing in March a new book scheduled to come out, Silent No More, How I Became a Political Prisoner of Mueller's Witch Hunt. Oh, my goodness, the story that you can tell, you and Roger Stone, Oh, my goodness. What happened to you? It was just a simple, innocent email between you and Roger Stone got so blown out of proportion that you had the inside knowledge on WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. And, oh, what other evil doings did you know about? How dare you, sir? <laughs> well, first of all, the um, Silent No More is uh, going to be out in an ebook very quickly here in the next few days. The hardcover won't be available until, um, like, March, and I wanted people to be able to read it right away. So I'm finishing up the audio book this weekend, and the e-book should be available very quickly. So I want people to be able to read it right now. And um, it's a day-by-day account of what it was like to go through this Mueller uh, Inquisition and uh, the horrible experience that it was. And I think you'll find it kind of riveting because it's written in the first person. You get to experience it there with me as, as I'm going through it. And um, it, it was just a horrifying experience. I mean, the from the very first day, they're saying they can put you in jail forever. And 
you know, it, while the law is written that you have to knowingly and willfully give them information you know is false with the intention to deceive the grand jury or the special prosecutor of the FBI, they implemented it was what they call a perjury trap, so that you're asked a question and you give a current memory, and then the FBI, which has got a eight-inch binder with every all your materials in it that they've researched, and you know on you pulls out an email you don't remember from two years ago and says, well, this email differs from what you just said, so now we're going to charge you with a lying. And you know I said that lying. I told you when I remember today, and obviously given the email you just showed me, I was wrong. But that doesn't mean I'm lying. Means my memory is bad. And you go through that for, you know, I had 40 hours with the special prosecutor, uh, six sessions over two months, and um, I'm still, I could not give them what they wanted, which is a link to Assange. They wanted um, to be Roger Stone to me, to Assange, and then from Roger Stone to Bannon to Trump, and that was their collusion argument. Except I never knew Julian Assange. I never spoke with him or emailed him. And they don't have any intermediary contact that connected me with Julian Assange. So their argument flew, fell apart. and They got furious, blew it up, and threatened to put me in prison. Man, hey, you're no spring chicken. I'm sorry. No, I'm 72 <laughs> uh, years to old. To be honest, that would be for the rest of your life. Uh, that's right, exactly. Um, you know, they don't they don't care. They ruin your life. They coming to make you spend thousands of dollars on lawyers and going down to Washington and talking to them. No, they're impossible. It's not been three months of this now, and it's about to ruin the holiday season, and I still don't know if they're going to indict me or not. But the whole thing is a farce. It's a joke. I mean, you know, as, not remembering a few emails is not intentionally deceiving the FBI by giving them information you know to be false. Misremembering is not that you knew it was false; it's that you didn't remember correctly. Yeah, you know, as you said, it, it's coming into the Christmas holidays, and you're sitting on pins and needles, wondering what your future will hold for you, and whether or not you're going to be able to enjoy this Christmas and relax with your family. You know, it's it's a huge burden, and not only that, people don't realize that when this type of a stress is placed on a person, what a, it will have on that person's health. And you know, and the having... whole family, and the whole family, the whole family. I mean, Christmas is destroyed for our family because you know we're in such disarray. You know, is Grandpa going to go to prison on Christmas Day? I, I don't know. Maybe yes. Maybe yes. You know, and um, you know, it... you know, you know, your wife crying. No, wife's very strong, and she's, you know, would rather see me maintain my integrity. The plea deal. I didn't want a plea deal. I, I was going. I was driving up to go on to NBC, pulling up in a limousine to 49th Street in downtown Manhattan. I was going to go on ABC afterwards, and David Gray, my attorney, calls me and said, don't go on the radio, don't go on television, because um, Zelensky, one of the press prosecutors in Mueller's office, called and said, if I get off TV, they'll offer me a plea deal and I won't have to go to prison well the deal they offered me was to um, plead guilty to one count of this 
willfully, knowingly giving them false information based on the first day of testimony when I had not seen or downloaded my 2016 emails. And they said, did I want to ever send anyone to see Assange? And I said, no. And there was this email that I'd forgotten. It said uh, it was from Roger Stone. Uh, I passed it on to Ted Malik in London and said, you know, Ted from Roger, Jerry, I passed it on to go see Assange. And so obviously I was willing for Malik to go see Assange. But that email took me about 10 seconds to pass on in a very busy day in July 2000. Preparing to go on to Coast to Coast AM. George Norrie had just written a novel. I was going to review it that night in the middle of the night. And um, because they let me come back actually and amend that testimony. And now they want me to plead guilty. I won't lie before a judge or God. And they're asking me to do that to plead to uh, something I know I didn't do, which I did not knowingly and willfully give them information I do to be with the intention to, to I turned over my computers. I went in and turned over my time machine. I signed over voluntarily all my email accounts. I wasn't trying to lie to them. I was trying to help them. And then the one count reflected my first day's testimony, not the reality, which is that they allowed me to amend that testimony about 10 days later when I had actually got a chance to see my 2016 emails. I came back, said I was wrong. I forgot about this email. Let me amend the testimony. So now I'm going to plead guilty to testimony I was allowed to amend, which is completely fraudulent. And that's not law enforcement. That's what criminals do. You know, the worst part is, is that if you were to have pled guilty on that, it would have been a felony. And then you would have yeah. lost your right to vote. Something as simple as well, not, only a gun, a right to vote would have been taken from you. That's right. Not only that, um, I said, look, so I plead before a federal judge that I'm, that's, so that day um, I fell and I had, they wanted to keep it secret. They might not sentence me for a year. If in that year I said anything or wrote anything that they didn't like, when it came a year later, time to go before the judge, they would not recommend leniency and that I deserve no prison time. They'd say, you violated the terms, and so therefore we demand prison time. And I couldn't write in that period of time, so they were going to deny me my First Amendment right. I said, I've got securities licenses and insurance licenses. I have a requirement to notify the regulators there's immediately if there's any change in my material circumstances. Uh, Jeannie Ree, one of the prosecutors, said, um, well, Dr. Corsi, because it's secret, you don't have to tell anybody. Well, that's not the way the regulations are written. Now they've <laughs> asked me to lie. They've asked me to violate a crime, you know, to, to commit some kind of a you know, violation of regulations or a crime by not reporting the change in status. Uh, my First Amendment rights are going to be gone. And... Um, since I can't earn, an earn and a living, maybe I have to declare bankruptcy. I can't even tell the bankruptcy court that I'm a felon. And um, that's another violation of law, not to disclose that to a bankruptcy court. So, you know, this, this fraudulent plea they gave me was A, a lie, B, it denied me my First Amendment rights, was trying to shut me up, and C, demanded that I commit violations of regulations and or laws 
in order to comply with their terms. That's what criminals do. This was a criminally constructed, politically motivated plea that they offered me, and I told them no, I wouldn't do it. And now I've gone vocal and I've published this book, and so now I'm sure they're twice as bad at me. It's all political. (laughs) Absolutely. Not only that, it's also what it costs you financially. We already know they bankrupted uh, General Flynn with their witch hunt, and now looks like thankfully he's not going to go to jail but he was forced to take a plea deal probably under extremely similar circumstances as to what you did something he forgot about in in one of his many meetings that is now he's paying for the rest of his life for the financial burden is no one's paying for your attorneys but yourself right right i mean you know, very quickly we're into it about two hundred thousand dollars you know that's whoa you know, it's, you don't have that's you know, a major, major strain. It's why I'm on CourseyNation.com trying to raise the money to help defer these legal expenses. And if they do indict me, it's going to be maybe two million dollars that it'll cost me. Man, I'm going to put that. Uh, I'm going to add that link onto the web page uh, when we get off air because I didn't have that last night. Uh, thank you for giving it. CourseyNation.com. Yeah, yeah, we got to make Thank that you. go viral to help uh, pay for your legal expenses. Guys listening out there, see, let's see what we can do. Try to help uh, Jerome do this, and uh, and absolutely download the uh, e-books as soon as he's got them up there. They're going to be up on Amazon, right? Or can we get now, them the at CourseyNation.com? It's now you can get it at Amazon, and because I'm not set up to distribute it, but get it at Amazon. And uh, it'll be course, Jerome Corsi, Silent No More. It's up there right now in the hardcover. And I you know, I want to sell the hardcover to build the numbers of the Amazon rank, rankings. But we're going to have, you know, I, I said, let's get, even though it's less money for us to do the ebook right away and do the uh, audio book right away so people can buy it and hear the book now. Because this is, you know, not just selling a book. This is getting the word out. Yeah, there's so many the people that they've been trying to take down over this scandal, and it turns out that it seems like there's really nothing behind any of it. You know, we don't know what yet is going to happen with Paul Manafort, but we know Papadopoulos is, was sent for 14 days to jail for something silly. He was just released today. Um, he was released today. He just got uh, out. There. I just sent him a message that. Go ahead, Curtis. This is my co-host, Jerome Curtis. BSN. Hi, Curtis. How are you? Yeah. All right. Nice talking to you. I've always sure, been intrigued pleasure. with this. I've always been intrigued with this Mueller investigation, because to me, if the the premise that this whole investigation is based on is false, and I'm talking about the dossier. It, it just boggles my mind that so far no one seems to have challenged the validity of this investigation because it was based on something that was, as Trump would say, fake. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I agree. Also, it's premised on the idea that Russia stole these emails from the Democrats and I don't think it had anything to do with Russia. Julian Assange says Russia wasn't involved. 
And yet, you know, the Democrats will not, and the Democrats in the deep state are controlling this investigation, won't give immunity to Assange, even though under, you know, the Pentagon Papers case, New York Times, the U.S., as a journalist, I think Julian Assange is a journalist. He had a right to be in possession of stolen material, even classified stolen material, as long as he didn't steal it. They had a right to publish it. Now, we ought to bring Julian Assange back here, give him immunity, and say, prove to us where you got these emails. They didn't come from Russia. Then there is no Russian collusion. And I don't think they did. I think it was a couple of really good studies, including one published in The Nation by a group of former NSA officials, showed that the time interval to steal these emails required that it be an inside job done by downloading them onto a thumb drive, not by a hack from the outside, which would have taken a lot more time. And again, the Mueller investigation is not interested in truth or this forensic examination of the actual theft of the emails. They just want to proceed on their predetermined premise, and they're looking for evidence to fit their premise. When I couldn't give it to them, because I don't know Julian Assange or anybody connected to Julian Assange, then they blow it up and I have to go to prison. And that's why I'm going to fight it. This whole thing is fraudulent, criminally fraudulent. It's funny funny because recently we had Judge... Recently, we had Judge Janine Pira on, and we came up to this exact subject. The result of the Mueller investigations is based upon the Steele dossier, which we know was 100% fabricated. This dossier was given to a FISA judge. The judge was not advised that it, the dossier was fabricated. So based upon some news articles and this phony dossier, the FISA warrants were issued, which has led us to this point in time. And in the field of law, because I'm a retired cop, she's a retired prosecutor, uh, it is known as fruit of the poisonous tree. Any evidence, any testimony that comes from that warrant must be dismissed. So anything that has occurred from the moment that FISA warrant was issued is unconstitutional. So I do not understand why this has not been challenged and why you, Roger Stern, Paul Manafort, Michael Flynn, all of you have been persecuted from the fruit of a poisonous tree. Well, that's right. I agree with you. And I mean, you know, the I filed, my lawyers filed a criminal complaint against Mueller and demanding an investigation of Mueller, a criminal investigation of Mueller, because they're, you know, you've got a bunch of, Donald Trump is right, of very angry Democrats, the three that were, and you know, prosecutors who were in the room when I was being questioned, um, Jeannie Ree, who Donald Trump you know, mentioned my name and tweeted about uh, this morning, she was a um, represented Hillary Clinton in the email scandal and the Clinton Foundation. Second one, Aaron Zelensky, he was a prosecutor under Rob Rosenstein, and he participated in the cover-up of the Uranium One scandal. And the third one, Andrew Goldstein, he was a head of the corruption division under Prep Bahar in the Southern District of New York, I kept asking him about the Billy Walters case. That's a case where Prep Bahara prosecuted a uh, Las Vegas Las Vegas gambler for insider trading 
but for four years, Pret Bahara's office had this FBI agent David Chavez leak grand jury information to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, systematically leak it. And that came out of trial. These are criminal prosecutors that are politically motivated. They're all Democrats. They've all contributed only to Democrats. And they, you know, I tried to give them information about Hillary or about um, Huma Abedin or even about how the Democrats really created their computer system. They didn't want to hear it. They only wanted to hear information that fit their narrative. And that, to me, is completely criminal. It's completely the wrong way to conduct an investigation. This is not an investigation. This is a political show trial. And, and I won't be part of it. I'll fight them to the death. They want to put me in prison. That's fine. But I'm not going to swear before a judge and before God that I um, a lie, that I committed a crime that I didn't commit. You know, usually this plea bargaining You've got a criminal and you give them a lesser offense. Well, I'm not a criminal, so I don't need a lesser offense. I don't have any offense. And I won't stand before a judge and plead guilty, making myself a felon when I know I didn't commit the crime. This is why it's criminal. Only criminals would run an investigation like this. These are political criminals, and I'm making that allegation. I'll stand by it. And, you know, I'm, I'm standing up to Mueller and defying him and saying, uh, let's go to court. If you want to indict me, I, I don't know where I'll come up with the money, but we'll fight it. I'm not going to let this happen. The nation's going to know they put a 72-year-old man in jail because, you know, I, uh, my crime is I supported Donald Trump, and I am religious. I say Jesus Christ is my personal Lord and Savior. This time you're spent here is only temporary to me, and I'm not going to do something that affects you know, be my a moral status by lying in front of a federal judge on a Bible just to make sure that Jeannie Rhee is happy and I stay out of jail. And that, they can put me in jail if they want to. You know, it, it, it's, it's amazing because they have a, a end result. They already have the answers Correct. they want. They want to now right. twist everything to fit that solution. No, that's, that's not right. the way it works. If you do an honest investigation, you go in there with an open mind, you look at both sides of the situation, or often there's more than two sides, maybe 15 or 20, and then you try to find out what the truth is. So it's like a scientist saying, uh, I know what the solution to the scientific problem is, so let me go to find out you know, the steps to explain away the solution. It's not the way it works. You're putting the cart before the horse. And thank God there are people like you and Roger Stones that are willing to stand up and, and fight these guys. You know, you have a David and Goliath fight on your hands. And oh, by the way, folks, David won. He was the little guy. So you are David in this fight. And uh, my prayers will go out to you, sir, definitely. You know, but you know, thankfully, you're not the only one that has a lawsuit against Mueller. There are now a total of four lawsuits currently against him. Yours being one of them. Uh, there's one that is going on with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation about the fact that he may have framed a gentleman on a gun charge when the gentleman didn't even have a gun in his possession, a felony charge, and put him into jail. Uh, that's the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, that one. What happened to number three? Oh, here he is. Uh, Mueller is also being sued by a grand jury witness. 
And this one is Federal Appeals Court announced Friday that it will hold a closed oral session on December 14th to address a lawsuit apparently filed against Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller by an unidentified grand jury witness. The case remains undersealed, and there's been intense speculation about what it was, uh, but it seems he may have had some jury tampering here. And then Tim Brown reported from uh, Freedom Outpost that there was a criminal complaint of treason filed by retired uh, Commander Walter Fitzpatrick. Um, so you know, it's you're not the only one that is going after Mola. So maybe finally, finally, in the end, you know his true colors will be shown to the American public. Well, I hope so. I mean, it's they have such power. And uh, this deep state is so strong. I mean, now the Democrats are going to control the House, and they're going to shut down all investigations of Hillary Clinton, all investigations of Peter Strozik and Lisa Page, and you know the FISA warrant process. We're going to cover all that up. We won't get any justice on any of that. If we've got political justice in the United States, and the deep state wins, this is not America anymore. And our freedoms, you know, it's happening to me, will happen to you all next. And uh, that's the, that should be the frightening thing to every American. You know, you, you don't, can't live anymore under a standard where you can expect there is really law and order because it's all a matter of um, rogue prosecutors and pursuing political agendas and um, it didn't matter that I couldn't connect um, Julian Assange to Roger Stone. They'd have been happy if I could lie to do it. They didn't care. They just wanted a name. You know, we just had Corey Lewandowski on just before you came on, and his book dovetails so much into what is going on with you with the deep state and the tie-ins between James Comey, Robert Mueller, Rod Rosenstein, Nellie Orr, uh, her husband, Robert Orr, the Steele dossier, it, it all ties in together. The information is out there, and yet mainstream media is not letting anyone know. Only platforms such as ours is allowing this message to get out there. Uh, but we've got to, we have to be the silent bucket brigade out there, and we've got to pass this information around, guys. And you know, go to uh, Jerome Corsi's website, which is CorsiNation.com, and give him a hand. You know, we're, we're going to have your back, sir. All right. Well, I'll be happy to come back anytime you ask. I'll, you know that. i got to admit, though, uh, Curtis and I are going to be taking a little bit of a time off. We have personal issues that we've got to take. Up. We'll be back after the beginning of the year. So, you know, I'll definitely – you know I've got you. I'll text you. We'll get you back Sure, on. that's fine. But, you know, it, come on back. It's heating up. It's heating up because we got uh, Comey right now giving testimony behind closed doors. It's going to be a while before we know what's going on. We now have four lawsuits going against Robert Mueller. And under Robert Mueller and under the FBI, uh, this now whistleblower had 16 FBI agents raid his home back in November. And this is just coming out to light. And there's another whistleblower that had his rights violated. So these two gentlemen are coming before Congress to testify before a commission headed by Mark Meadows. This is starting to really heat up. Well, the the FBI is being run by political criminals. We don't have equal justice in this country. We don't have justice at all. What you've got is, you know, deep state, Democratic Party controlled 
um, political justice, which seeks to have vengeance on anybody that supported Donald Trump. And, you know, I'm pretty much at the top of their list. All right. Uh, we've got Vito Esposito. Uh, he's got his own radio show uh, up here on Blog Talk Radio. Would like me to send him your contact information. Uh, sure, go right ahead. Me what information you want me to give? Okay, great. All well, right. Just give he's the a great guy. Not- you have. Go ahead and share it. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. All right, Vito, I'll, I'll get that over to you a little bit later on. Um, yeah, Vito, email me through my webpage, which is the name of the show, Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle uh, because nine times out of ten, as soon as I get off the air, my mind goes somewhere else and I'll forget. So send me an email and I'll get that back to you tonight. Okay, Vito, appreciate it. Um, nice Italian boy, <laughs> just like you. Mm-hmm. Good. That's good. Yeah, it was yeah, things are being exposed because now in Cohen's plea deal, evidence was not presented that should have been. And this was in direct violation of law. And it turns out that evidence that was not presented would have completely exonerated Trump, which then made, would have made persecution of you and Robert Stone null and void. And still you have the sword hanging over your head. Right. Well, this has got to come to a stop, and I'm going to continue to resist it. And I don't know whether they'll indict me or not, but um, I'm going to continue to fight it. And um, uh, Donald Trump has, last night and tonight, both tweeted with my name in it. So I, I now know he's aware of the case, and he's obviously upset about it, as am I. And I think the American people need to know about what's going on, which is why I'm going to get this book silent no more out there so people can read it and hear me reading it and the audio book get it out right away you know is that I, the ebook could go up this weekend and then uh, i want to start doing as much radio as i can do to get the word out i've had some television i was on uh, trish regan's show last night and if you go to my tweet which is drum dot Corsi or drum underscore Corsi, drum underscore Corsi, you'll see um, I've been posting a lot of the media I've gotten to get the facts of this of my case out known to the American public. You know, it's important. You also have a YouTube uh, channel out there where you talk about everything going on. There's a link on the show page here. Uh, so when people are listening to the podcast in archives, they they can click on that. And a matter of fact, our friend Kel Fritzy, our, our sister from Canada, uh, just mentioned that our show right now is sitting number one on Blog Talk Radio. So uh, hopefully oh, it'll get the message out there and get get you more coverage. I mean, it, I, I people are saying that they're going to go through Southern Sense withdrawal because I can't believe I've been doing this for, oh, good Lord, eight and a half years. Um so it's going to be a little odd to take that long a time off. I've only taken like one day or maybe two days off oh, wow. for this long a period. So it's going to be, you know, we get to the point in, in time and age where we all have to recharge our batteries. You know that. I know that. Oh, I know and, it. You know, you I know have, it. You have a higher profile than I have. So the stress on you must be even more so because uh, you worked with Alex Jones. You had worked with World Net Daily. And even through there, you were being attacked. Uh, you've been mercilessly attacked on, on social networks. Then to have Robert Mueller and his henchmen to come after you, 
is is unbelievable. And as uh, Corey was saying, that you you can't make this stuff up. This is a Hollywood movie script in real life. Well, that's right, and it's a, it's a horror show. It's what it is. And going through it, living it, this is not America. This is not the United States. We don't have justice in this country anymore. Not as long as the Robert Mueller's are around and the deep state is still running the Department of Justice. I'm not sure it can be cleaned out. Uh, I just hope the deep state hasn't won. I'm going to continue fighting it. And I think my case is going to be um, very important to see if uh, I get imprisoned because I have a bad memory. Oh, man. You know, there are things that we forget, uh, you know, even at my age. I, last night, I started to walk into the kitchen four times. And each time I started to walk into the kitchen, I ended up in a completely different room. So, you know, here I pride myself on my memory. But when you're have, you're sitting there under the hot lights, and, and they do make those rooms as uncomfortable as possible, even though they keep on asking, are you comfortable, are you comfortable? You, you, you're under physical stress as well as emotional stress. You're going to forget things. You very simply are. And then to turn around and say, well, you're a criminal because you forgot. Well, What? Really? I know it's really a, a terrible experience. And it's not the way justice should be done. You know, you're supposed to be presented with evidence. You're supposed to be able to respond to evidence. Uh, here you're asked questions and not shown the evidence. And if you don't get it right, if you have an email from two years ago or five years ago or whatever that contradicts something you remember currently, then they accuse you of violating this law and said you're intentionally misleading us. No, I'm not intentionally misleading anybody, you know, but I don't have a perfect memory. I told them that over and over and over again. They allowed me to amend the testimony any number of times, but then when they don't get what they want, they blow it up. You know, it, it's it's funny because, you know, I'm trying to remember when I used to testify as a cop, but that was in a courtroom, not in, in an interrogation such as this. You know, our favorite thing would be always, well, can I check my notes? Or do you have a copy of what you're speaking about so I can look at it and maybe refresh my, my memory? Did they even allow you any of that? Very rarely. They said, I don't want to be reconstructing or inventing. So you had to remember. I said, I can't remember. They said, it's impossible you can't remember this. I mean, it was, it was a nightmare. And they ask you the same thing over and over again. As you give a little variation in the answer, they look at one, they say, well, I told us four different things. Well, you know, they also hours, have the trick of asking. Yeah, after yeah, 40 three hours, six sessions. I did 40 hours, six sessions over two months constantly going back and forth to Washington and under tremendous stress the entire time. And at the end of it, you know, it ruins your life. That's what they wanted. They want to remove me from, so I can't write anymore. They're punishing me for all the books I've written back to Unfit for Command. This is a political, you know, co-authored Unfit for Command against John Kerry. and The books I wrote against Obama, which were very effective, and this current killing the deep state. They don't like all these writings, so they want to get rid of me. 
And the best way to do it is to shut you up one way or another. And That's if you right. were convicted of a felony, then you can't earn a living. Oh, but by the way, it's going to be a secret. You don't have to tell anyone. But if you fail to tell uh, the insurance companies that you no longer uh, that you are no longer have a clean record that you do have a felony conviction, you're committing insurance fraud. If you go before yeah. uh, the bankruptcy court and you don't advise them that you are a convicted felon, you are now in violation of the court and subject to you know, other penalties, other criminal uh, punitive penalties could be placed upon you. Uh, and this is what the special counsel is telling me to do. Yeah, they're, they're telling me to do this. Law the Department of Justice is telling me to do this, to commit these violations or crimes as a condition of accepting this plea. I mean, they're the criminals, not me. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't accept this plea. I didn't want the plea to begin with. So when they offered it, when I no. saw what they were going to offer, I saw how completely fraudulent it was. I didn't want it. No, and and you are a courageous man for standing up. And they were trying to pit you against Roger Stone, and fortunately, that didn't work out either. Are no. they still going after gonna... Roger Stone, or are they waiting to see what goes, what happens with you? I don't know what they're doing. You have to ask Roger. I mean. Um, they were going after both of us, and I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with Roger, but um, I don't. Roger didn't do anything that I know of. He was trying to find out what Julian Assange had, just like everybody else was trying to find out what Julian Assange had. After July 22nd, when Julian Assange dropped 40,000 emails to the Democratic National Committee on Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and he said he had more, everybody wondered what did he have. That's a natural question. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, we're looking at the clock. We're coming down to our last uh, four minutes here, Jerome. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, but I have a comment because uh, Sasquatch in the uh, chat room asked, uh, if forgetting makes you a criminal, why aren't the Clintons in jail? Very good question on that one. Good question. So, Jerome, good question. Uh, I'll be speaking <laughs> I'll be speaking to uh, with you over the Christmas holidays. Uh, feel free to give me a shout, too. And I'll let you know when we come back up on the air. We'll get you back up again immediately. And my prayers are with you. My deepest uh, prayers are with you. And I'll put up the website, twocoursynation.com, so people can get the e-books or can go on to Amazon as well as get the hardcover books and check out Killing the Deep State, The Fight to Save President Trump, and your new book coming out, Silent No More, How I Became a Political Prisoner of Mueller's Witch Hunt. God bless you, sir, and I'm going to wish you a very Merry Christmas. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. God bless. You know we love you. God bless you. Thank you. All right, Jerome Corsi, uh, check out his website. Please give him a hand in this fight, CorsiNation.com. The man is amazing. Uh, Love him to death. Uh, So, Curtis, this is all we have for the rest of the year. I want to thank those that stayed with us in the chat room as well as those that were watching up on Facebook and YouTube. Um, It's going to be hard for me to not come near the equipment, but there's too much going on. Uh, I've got some more surgery coming up. So we will be back uh, after the beginning of the year. So, Curtis, give me a shout because we may even alter the time and date that we do the show to make it more convenient uh, for you guys. Maybe one day a week and do it two hours. Uh, So, Curtis, we'll talk uh, over the holidays and see how we restructure everything. So, go ahead. I was just going to say. All right, uh, we'll talk.
want everybody to enjoy the holidays, and uh, we'll be in touch. Well, as Kel said, it is Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah, and also I'll throw in Happy New Year. So I'm leaving you with our closing song, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. Good night, and God bless. Thank you.